Hey guys, welcome back for another episode of the AltMed podcast. Andrew Dowling here with me as always, my co-host Mitch Kurtz. We've got a very, very special Hello. guest today. Um, checking in with us from all the way over in sunny LA, it is Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, who you're about to meet and who, for those who don't know, is the author of probably one of the Bibles of cannabis medicine, which is just called Cannabis is Medicine. And she's also the director of the, the medical director of Canna Centers. So Dr. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Great Fantastic to have you. have you on the show. I actually, um, I read your book and since then I've just been, yeah, I know you've done a couple of chats in Australia as well as a keynote speaker um, over, over the course. And it, I just remember reading the book and being so taken aback about how simplified you made the science of cannabis medicine. So I knew one day it'd be our absolute pleasure to host you on this on the show. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, yeah, I guess that's probably the the place I'd love to to start. But before that, we usually ask our guests how they got into cannabis prescribing. So how what was your journey to get towards there? You know, obviously you were a doctor first and 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 possibly even before that, your your journey with cannabis. Did, did you, and yeah, if you could just let us know if you were using cannabis during med school and, and these sorts of things. That'd be <laughs> yeah. So I was pretty cannabis naive, I guess, except for the, like the few little experiences in college. And then, you know, when you get serious about going to medical school, I just, you know, you hunker down and you, you have so much work on your plate. There's hardly any time for anything really other than studying. And then, you know, I went into my residency program. So yeah, it really wasn't part of my life. And luckily I was a well person, you know, other than for the typical anxiety and insomnia that kind of goes along with the career path that I chose. Mm -hmm. um, but um, in general, you know, I was uh, wanted to be a doctor since I was a little girl and I followed that dream and luckily enough, you know, studied hard and got through it all. And I went into the field of um, pediatrics and specifically pediatric emergency medicine, which I did for many years. And as you can imagine, you know, it's really rewarding work, but quite demanding. And after getting married and having my own child, I just got a little burned out. Uh, you know, I did that for about 13 years. And then I had uh, taken some time off, like a leave of absence, because I was just exhausted. I was working at night. I was taking care of my son during the day because I wanted to do wanted to be a full-time mom, full-time doctor. And then of course, you know, of course the burnout hits. And then mm -hmm. during that time, I took a leave of absence. I had a friend who reached out and asked me about medical cannabis. And around that time, just to kind of put it in perspective, California, where I, you know, did my um, training and work where I've lived here for 30 plus years. Um, I knew that we had a law, it passed in 1996 but I had nothing to do with it. I didn't know anything about cannabis. I didn't know anything about the endocannabinoid system until a friend of mine asked me about it. And I would say, this is probably 10 years after the law passed and uh, just, you know, really wasn't on my radar. And when she asked me about it, I had time to do some research and I couldn't believe what I was reading. Here's this whole system called the endocannabinoid system that no one taught us about. Major part of our physiology, right? the most widespread receptor system in our brain. And I don't know about that. No doctor knows about that really, other than the few who were in the field. So it really piqued my curiosity and the kind of that 
science geek that's uh, inside me. And I started reading. And the more I read about it, the more I knew that when I went back to medicine, I was going to try to work in that field. And that's what I ended up doing. That's amazing. What, how, how, why do you think it is that you, you know, we weren't taught ACS at med school? Uh, not we, including me, just general doctors. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a great question. And unfortunately, it's still not being taught in the vast majority of schools, uh, medical schools right now. Um, so when I went to medical school it was right around the time that they were discovering the endocannabinoid system. So I would say that for someone kind of in my age cohort, that makes sense, right? We weren't taught about it because they were just discovering it. But mm. after a law passes, like in 1996, that then says people in California who have qualifying conditions can use cannabis medically, and you can go to a doctor and get approved. That's where it kind of the ball to me just got dropped. I mean, why, if, if it's something that was, and I understand that it was voted in here as a uh, voter referendum, like doctors were not involved in it. And I think most doctors were like, we don't want anything to do with it. But certainly, and I still feel this way to this day, you cannot ignore a major physiologic system, especially when we see one, so many benefits clinically, and then in research, of course, supports how safe and well tolerated it is, and that it does work in many cases. Um, and so to me, it just, it just seems crazy that it's not in the curriculum. And as I describe it in the book, it's not rocket science, especially if you're in the science track of education. Once you learn about it, you can kind of understand it makes sense. It's this physiologic regulator that keeps us balanced, keeps the cellular messages that are going from cell to cell, um, uh, maintains them in a balanced way to achieve what they call homeostasis. It's really a survival mechanism. And certainly, why wouldn't we want to take advantage of that as scientists, especially when Mother Nature gives us this plant that contains compounds that mimic the compounds that we have in our in our body that we make naturally? Yeah, it, it surprises me that we, you know, as you said, they were only discovering it around the time that, you know, you were going to school or, or, or just starting out as a, as a doctor uh, like cannabis has been around for as long as we have for all we know. And and it doesn't make sense that we discovered maybe opioid systems before, before endocannabinoid systems to me, like it feels like something that should have been learned about a long time ago, but I guess that's steeped in a whole lot of uh, political and, and social kind of uh, background. Um, I would love, because we've had a few doctors talk about it, but I, I feel like you're very qualified to tell us at least in a, the basic terms, how, THC or CBD or, you know, combinations of minor cannabinoids are actually working in the body. Is there, is I don't want to get too laborious in it, but if it's a little bit simple, as you said, what is the basics for doctors that say, you know, there's just not the research, uh, there's no science out there to prove it, which of which there's many even here in Australia. Well, how, how can that be broken down in, in a simple way, kind of summarize the, what's happening? Sure. It's a great question. So the first thing to understand about these compounds is, again, they mimic compounds that we make in our body, especially a compound called anandamide. So anandamide was discovered in 1992. It is our inner cannabis-like compound. And it turns out that there's probably five or more of them, even I think the last number I heard was at least 13, um, but five very more well-known 
um, endocannabinoid. So endo means within cannabinoid, cannabis-like compound. The compounds from the plant are phytocannabinoids. So why do we make endocannabinoids? And as I've mentioned, it's to help maintain balanced cellular messages. So we make these inner light cannabis compounds on demand when we need them. So for instance, there's a trigger like a traumatic insult or an infection or an illness of some sort. And what ends up happening is our body goes into action. Oh, there's this stressor on us crank out some endocannabinoids, including anandamide. And what happens is these compounds are released in response to the stressor and they're made on demand. So your body takes healthy fat and uses some enzymes to put the healthy fat in a, uh, together in a certain way, creating the endocannabinoid. And that compound gets released from one cell to another, basically telling the cell that it goes to, hey, calm the message down, stop sending so much message. And like, what would be a, a over message or too much would be like nausea or pain or anxiety, a panic attack, a seizure, right? So mm -hmm. something that, so what's happening is the stressor is causing your body to react. And then the endocannabinoid gets made to kind of help balance that overreaction message. And sometimes that message is good. If a bear is chasing you, that's my usual uh, um, <laughs> example. If a bear is chasing me, I should be panicked and I should be running in the other direction. Yes, that's very adaptive. But you don't want to be just sitting in your living room and all of a sudden you have this massive panic attack out of nowhere, right? Mm. And remember too that if you're getting chemotherapy, nausea is a response to that because it's a poison to you. Your body's recognizing it as a poison and wants to get rid of it. That's why we have nausea and vomiting. But at, it becomes maladaptive at some point, right? And miserable to live like that. So our body cranks out these endocannabinoids in response. And we understand that THC, for instance, mimics anandamide. So let's say chronic illness, your body just can't, the endocannabinoid system is not working well. In children with autism, they figured out that they have lower levels of anandamide to begin with. And as you can see, it manifests as some kind of abnormal behaviors and mm. maybe self-injurious behavior and not sleeping at night and terrible anxiety. So what we're doing with THC is if you take THC, it binds to the same receptor. So we have these cannabinoid receptors where our anandamide binds. And really all you're doing is when you take THC is you're substituting one cannabinoid from the plant for the one that you make in your body, the endocannabinoid. Mm. And so it's like a key and a lock and they just bind together. And then you asked, mentioned CBD. Well, CBD doesn't bind directly in the same site as THC. And that's why CBD is not intoxicating. THC is because certain areas of your brain where you have cannabinoid receptors, when THC hits that receptor, you get that intoxicating effect. But CBD kind of binds, I call it like a traffic cop. It binds to the side of the receptor and it regulates how tightly the keys fit into the lock. Um, but the other thing to be very clear about is these compounds are what in the scientific world we call promiscuous. So they have, they're not very selective. They go to multiple different um, receptors. And for CBD, it go, CBD goes, uh, affects enzymes and um, transporters and ion channels and lots of different places. In fact, CBD is, you know, last count 
over 65 different places where it works in the body. So what I tell everybody is in this kind of non-selective way, you have to be very careful what you promise to people because remember the person's underlying chemistry is what's going to dictate how they respond to CBD or THC. So why does it work for one person and not another? Well, you may be hitting targets that don't need to be hit, right? Mm. Or you may, someone is a responder because it's hitting all the targets that they need to be uh, targeted. So it's, um, these are not like single compound pharmaceuticals. And that's very important to understand, but in a way, the benefit with, you know, I look at cannabis as just another botanical medicine is that botanical medicine has these, you know, synergies or what we call the entourage effect where the compounds kind of enhance each other's effects, but also, so for instance, if you use just CBD isolate, which means it's by itself, like a purified CBD with no other compound from the plant, you're going to have to use a much higher dose than if you were to use something uh, CBD containing that had other compounds in it, because like, and I sound kind of hippy dippy when I say it, but mother nature packages it in a certain way that, you know, why are we stripping it down? Why are we changing it? There are certain conditions for which maybe someone would respond to a purified or an isolated compound. But in general, I like to take advantage of the botanical medicine uh, effect because I think that there's, and studies are now showing this, that you can get better results at a lower dose with less side effects. Yeah, absolutely. No, we, um, I mean, a lot of the doctors that we've, we've had on the podcast to date would generally sort of indicate their preference for prescribing a full spectrum oil rather than, you know, an isolate. Um, but, you know, to your point, of course, there, there are some people who patients who do respond to isolates. I'm just curious, given that, you know, uh, when you said at the outset that this law was passed in 1996, I mean, you guys over in California had a huge head start on where we are in Victoria. In terms of what the medical, the state of the medical knowledge over there, do you find that, you know, most doctors who are working with full spectrums actually can sort of look at minor cannabinoid profiles and compositions within an oil and actually know exactly what it is that they're looking for. I'm just curious when you're prescribing in in your practice, and I know this is a very general question given that it'll be patient by patient, but what types of um, oil compositions do you tend to work with? Are they CBD dominant, but with a fairly rich presence of minor cannabinoids? That's right. Well, so my approach is usually in the beginning and remember that Um, some patients are already using it when they come to you and you kind of get it. If you question properly, you can get an understanding of what they're using and then try to enhance and, and kind of make it better for them. Right. And also help with dosing in terms of milligrams. Cause a lot of people don't really know what they're taking. They don't really understand the labels. And, you know, I've had people say, well, I'm taking 700 milligrams and I'm like, "Mm, all at once or, and they'll say, no, the bottle says 700. I'm like, okay, so there's 700 milligrams in the whole bottle. You're only taking a small part of that. So Mm. labels can be very confusing for patients. So that's one thing, but in general, I try to work with what in, especially to start with what I call mono, um, cannabinoid dominant products. So if I'm going to, um, recommend CBD. I'm using something that is going to be a high CBD with a lower amount of THC, like a high ratio CBD to THC um, product. 
so that I can kind of see what is CBD doing in this patient. So we can get an understanding of how that works. So for instance, right now I'm working with a young, uh, young child who has a rare genetic syndrome. It's like described in 14 people you know, in the whole world. So very rare, he's got multitude of symptoms. And by kind of playing with the CBD, we figured out the CBD really helps with his GI tract, with his nausea, with his gagging, with his acid reflux. Um, if you use a lot of combination right out of the get-go and you don't, you see negative, you don't really understand, well, what, what's giving him a negative effect? Is it the CBD, the THC, the minor cannabinoids? Is it the terpene profile? So I try to stick with those monodominant products. So if I'm going to try CBD, I try high CBD, low THC. If I'm going to try THC, it's going to be pretty much a straight THC product. I use a lot of other compounds too. So most recently we've been using CBDV, cannabidivarin. I'm seeing some extremely surprising but excellent results in children with epilepsy, significant reduction of seizures in, in not very high doses, um, but also helping with anxiety and sleep. Very surprising. And this is one of the newer cannabinoids. Um, I use a lot of CBDA in my practice. So CBDA is the raw form of CBD. So you harvest that from the plant without heating it up, right? Um, I use a lot of CBG, but again, I try to go with the monodominant. I don't really have a lot of control over the terpenes. It's kind of like this company will have a CBG product with that certain profile. And another company may have a CBG dominant with a different profile. And I try to kind of go by what I can tell in that profile, but sometimes remember this, you're taking a very complex botanical medicine and you're putting it in a very complex creature, a human, right? And you just really have to, you know, we have the saying, start low and go slow. And with close medical supervision, you can kind of see what you'll see is through my, like, and this is what I do all day long when I'm seeing patients is I'm collecting feedback. So you get a sense of what CBG does for a certain condition, and you get a sense of what CBDA does or what CBDV does. But I really like the monodominant to start with. That doesn't mean I don't use combination. Like, so four to one CBD THC works really well for my, uh, like teenagers with anxiety, teenagers with chronic pain very low doses. The combination works beautifully and they're unlikely to abuse it. I don't really worry about that in my patient population again, because it's, it's medically supervised. Um, and of course I'm working with the parents, but at the same time, um, you know, what we have to remember, which is really important. And I talk about this in the book is that, um, a lot of patients with chronic illness likely have an endocannabinoid deficiency or dysfunction. And yes, you can use THC to help with that anandamide, but remember there's a lot of overlap with these compounds. So for some people, a high CBD, low THC might be enough to treat that condition that might be related to the anandamide deficiency. But for some people, that's not going to work and they need more THC in their product or they're a better responder to CBG. So it really is um, a very individual response. But again, I try to be, uh, you know, approach it like a method to the madness because <laughs> again, now there's so many products. And if you don't kind of follow a certain protocol, but also let the patient lead the way, you know, their response, um, 
you may miss out on what works. And so that's why like when people go by themselves into a, let's say a cannabis dispensary here, and you know, in California, we've now had, you know, it's legalized for over 21. And I think people go in and they don't really know anything. And there's this whole array of products and they just start picking stuff based on maybe a suggestion by someone who's a non-healthcare professional working behind the counter, who's just kind of a salesperson. And, um, you know, I could see how it would get a little bit difficult to find your way. Um, so again, my approach always is monodominant to start with and then slowly. And in the book, I talk about rule it in or rule it out. If you've ruled it in, you have a product that's helping. You've kind of narrowed in on the dose. But then I always say, if there's room for improvement, you can add in another cannabinoid. And again, monodominant, so you know what you're dealing with. The, the cannabinoids, especially the minor cannabinoids, are building a lot of steam in the medical community in, in Australia. There's got a lot of doctors asking, you know, oh, you know, I've seen CBG. I hear a lot about CBN for sleep, for example, things like this. Um, are you able to give us like a, a very high level kind of where CBG might fit in the piece of the puzzle, what it might be good for CBC, CBN, these, these types of cannabinoids? Sure. So CBG, cannabigerol, uh, again, depending on the population working with, but for, let's just say for adult population, um, the things that it seems to help with is mood. So anxiety reduction for some people alleviate some depression, feelings of depression. Some people report that it helps with sleep. Likely what it does is it alleviates that anxiety so that you can relax and sleep. Mm. I don't know that it has a direct um, sedative effect because mm. I don't hear about that. And in fact, in some of my patients in low dose, it's actually quite alerting. So they only use it in the morning. And again, it may just be due to that alleviation of uh, anxiety. Same thing with CBD. It alleviates anxiety so that maybe you could sleep better. Um, for CBG as well, like, so in my population of pediatric autism patients, I have found CBG again, to help with anxiety. Very, most people don't realize this, but kids with anxiety have uh, I'm sorry, kids with autism have very high anxiety for the most part. And so CBG can help with that. Really interesting, about 30% of my patients with autism who try CBG, the parents report improvement in sleep, mm. which is, I'm sorry, take it back, in speech. Um, right. So it's quite fascinating that literally adding in CBG and then all of a sudden the parents are reporting, they're putting words together. Spot, not just, and again, in autism, many children just repeat speech or answer when they're questioned. Like, do you, are you hungry? And they'll answer yes. Or do you want water? Yes, water. But spontaneously putting sentences and words together. And I've, like I said, heard this from about 30% of the patients. Um, I don't know why that is. I'm not sure what that mechanism of action is. Um, as for CBN, which is cannabinol, I don't find it to be all that useful. The industry seems to be throwing it at people for sleep, sleep, sleep. Everybody's talking about sleep. There is mm. not one study that shows that it helps with sleep. What is CBN? Remember, it's age THC. So in a CBN product, you're still going to have some THC. So if you're sleeping, maybe it's from THC. By the way, I find THC to be the best sleep agent of all, yeah. of all the cannabinoids, sure. um, especially, and again, certain strains, of course, the ones are chemovars with myrcene and linalool, more sedating terpenes that help uh, uh, promote that sedative effect. But for cannabinol, I have to be honest, I haven't used it very much. It does seem that here and there for certain patients, 
I've seen with kids with autism, um, it's helped with um, kind of calming, but THC can do that. But also CBN, there are some patients that report that it, it's, it seems that those products help for pain. But again, remember hard to decipher because there's going to be uh, THC in there. I would like to comment on THCA and CBDA. Those are yep. both the raw cannabinoids or the, you know, before they're decarboxylated. Those seem to work really well for um, infl inflammatory conditions. So I'll share with you, I have some elderly patients who have been with me for years who, you know, as they get older, people change. Cannabis isn't going to fix everything. You still live your life, right? And so one of my patients who is pretty elderly, you know, 90 years old, developed gout and went from doctor to doctor. So, you know, a gout is a very painful condition. You get gout like in your joints, um, um, and anyway, he was miserable. He was just prescribed opiates and he reached out and just said, you know, I tried some THC and CBD because he was already a patient he goes, but when I go higher on the dose, I become a little bit dizzy. And at his age, of course, we don't want him to fall. So I said, let's, you know, we can try some CBDA. And at that point I had already an inkling that it helped with inflammatory joint pain. He had complete resolution of gout pain within five days on what I would call a fairly high dose of CBDA around 150 milligrams a day. Hmm. I have some other patients as well who have arthritis where I've encouraged them to use CBDA um, in similar doses, somewhere between 50 and 200 milligrams with resolution of inflammatory pain, not just reduction, but resolution. Wow. It's really wow. impressive. And remember if you're not familiar with CBDA, you do not become intoxicated with as very little THC in it. It's raw. It's from a genetic, a plant genetically has very little THC potential anyway. So it's like my new favorite cannabinoid. I'm also seeing in some pediatric patients that it's helping with anxiety. Um, there's some evidence that it might work really well for gut inflammation as well. There's a young man I take care of with uh, ulcerative colitis who's had some real challenges and we had him on, well, he's on a concoction now. So he's on what I, you know, a cocktail of cannabinoids. So he takes CBD, he takes um, CBG and he takes CBDA, all of which kind of target a few different things. But I think together overall, he's getting tremendous reduction of his gut inflammation to the point where he was on CBD first, and then he was on CBG second. And then when we added the CBDA, and by the way, you know, he's followed by other doctors and he gets blood work routinely. When we added in the CBDA was when we saw the actual inflammatory markers in the gut go down. Mm, so wow. the question is, is it the CBDA or is it the whole cocktail? Mm, right. Very complex. One thing I would always also like, I, I want to add in about all these cannabinoids is that we're asking a plant to take on some heavy duty changes in our cellular physiology. You must give it a chance. It is not magic. It doesn't work like right out of the gate. Most studies, when you look at, and if you look at kind of like, cause I read, try to read everything that comes out. So like, for instance, a study came out on CBD for epilepsy last year, and it showed that at one month, you know, there was an X reduction, I want to say 40% reduction of seizures, but by a year, 
it was up around 60. And then by two years, it was like 70%. So here you are long-term seeing better and better results. So you have to remember too, that if the endocannabinoid system and other physiologic, let's say, um, like your neurotransmitters are out of whack, cannabis is not like a harsh synthetic. It's going to go in and it's going to take its time, but it's eventually, if you know, you're a responder, it's eventually going to correct that. And so you'll see in like a Parkinson's study that came out that the patients who were on it for 12, 12 weeks had much better results than when they first were assessed at the one month or two month mark. It was at the three month mark that it really made a difference. So especially in the face of chronic illness, think of somebody who's been chronically ill for 10 years. Mm. It's not going to like fix you overnight. If, now, if it does, hey, hallelujah for you. Wonderful result. <laughs> You're a great responder. Yeah. And, you know, because I've had people come in my office and say, you know, my friend gave me this thing and I tried it and I think it's my medicine. I feel so much better. That's wonderful. But for some people, the chronicity of illness requires a little bit longer treatment to get things back into balance. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, speaking about balancing the endocannabinoid system, uh, uh, sometimes we think about it as though you need to keep taking it every month, as you, as you said, or every day, every week, every month, and it might take some time to get to the right dose or the right formulation. Is there ever, do you ever see in your clinical practice um, scenarios where people might take it for an extended period of time, say a couple of years, three years, something like that, and then they end up kind of balancing their endocannabinoid system permanently as a result of that treatment. And so they don't need the actual medicine anymore. Is it this kind of thing that you're going to need to take that for the rest of your life just to stay in homeostasis? Well, the answer is both. And I think it just depends on your, you know, what you're struggling with and how your body responds, but it is absolutely common in my practice for adult patients to say, oh yeah, no, I'm just using it little by little. I don't use it nearly as much as I did when I first was with you or those first two years. Mm. And remember things in life change, right? But also it's kind of like working out. So if you're out of shape and you go to the gym tomorrow, you're not in shape tomorrow. <laughs> you're gonna yeah. get work, right? Three, six months, get yourself in shape but then you may not have to work so hard to stay in shape, right? You mm. can do kind of maintenance mm. and you don't have to go for the, you know, two hour gym session to get yourself into shape anymore. Cause you're kind of already there. And then you're just, you know, I know people who hit the gym three times a week and they maintain fantastic shape. Um, it's very similar with the endocannabinoid system. Cause again, once it's up and running and it turns out that you know, there are some studies that show that when the endocannabinoid system is in balance and it seems to be up and running, um, I, um, it, it just doesn't need that much to stay there. Now, I'll give you an example. You know, I had a patient that had these horrific migraine headaches and he came to me with kind of complaining that the only medication that was working for him was this very expensive shot. And they would only give him nine vials a month. And it was just, like I said, terribly expensive. And he was always afraid that he was going to run out of them by the end of the month. And the insurance wouldn't update it, like created more stress for him, this whole mm. system of the way the medicine was being um, parsed out. But anyway, after like a year, you know, follow-up, he was like, I feel great. The cannabis keeps the headaches away. And if I happen to get one, it, I can abort that headache right away if I use my cannabis. And so he did not come back for after a year. 
he had been doing so well and he didn't come back. And, you know, I kind of didn't notice of a lot of patients and my staff takes care of appointments, but three months after his, what, what would have been his yearly checkup, I saw him, he said, you know, I was doing so good. I wasn't even really using it. The headaches were gone and I was doing great. And it's been three months since I've had access to cannabis. I haven't used it. And I got the worst migraine. So it's kind of like his physiology fell back mm. into what his baseline chemistry was doing, but other patients will find. So for instance, some of my chronic pain patients who use it, you know, multiple times a day in the beginning, find that they only need one dose a day. And if they had to, they could go three or four days before the pain starts to creep back. So for some people, you know, their underlying physiology plays nice and says, oh yeah, we don't need it anymore. And then for other people, they can fall back on their baseline chemistry, which, you know, has a lot to do with not only your genetics, but also your lifestyle. And, you know, the food, we all know that the food that we eat is huge in terms of our health. No doctors are really addressing that in general. So, which mm. is really unfortunate, but it's a really good question because I do think that for some people, once a month use kind of keeps them on track. And for other people, they need to use it daily. And I think we have to respect that for most people, they have to just kind of find what works for them. Just a quick one. I, when we were going through some of the minor cannabinoids, one of the ones that we see as well is cannabicramine, CBC. Do you deal much with, with that one? I haven't used it very much. Um, there's only one um, that I know of that's available and it's fairly expensive. Um, and there's very little research on it, although it does seem to be a good anti-inflammatory mm -hmm. um, and probably an analgesic. Um, there is some evidence that it may benefit, like in animal studies, uh, there may be some benefit for dysfunctional gut. But I, at this point, don't have a huge amount of experience using that particular cannabinoid. And I think part of it is that, remember too, that um, without the more research. So I just don't want to experiment on people. That's number yeah. one. And number sure. two, um, when there's only one product available and it's an isolate and it's very expensive, you know, most patients kind of, they kind of want to see a little bit more information before they delve in. Yeah. Um, I just also curious about the kind of where doctors are at in, in America at the moment in terms of this, I guess, um, advanced knowledge comparative perhaps to, to the Australian medical establishment, we still have a lot of doctors in Australia that would, you know, some of the conditions that you've been talking about, like, you know, ulcerative colitis and these autoimmune inflammatory diseases, they'd say, well, no, you know, I'm going to treat that with a registered medicine that, you know, targets cytokines, interleukin, you know, like really specific, um, like the MABs and, and those sorts of medicines. Is the American medical establishment broadly more open to using cannabis as a medicine, do you feel, or is that still, do you still find that you stick out a little bit over there? Yeah, it's a great question. So look, I've had 14 years to be part of this and to kind of see the evolution. When I entered this field 14 years ago, it was like, I might as well be handing out all kinds of, you know, ecstasy and, and <laughs> helping people shoot up heroin. Like that's really how it was looked at. 
except yeah. for a few select doctors who knew about the endocannabinoid system and participated in the kind of the world of cannabis, or at least kind of would listen to their patients and hear that. Like, so for instance, if, you know, what are the reasons that cannabis even got passed through in California was because of HIV AIDS, right? Remember in the early night, late eighties, early nineties, um, there were really no medications for this condition and patients were dying and cannabis, the doctors that were taking care of those patients, I'm sure they saw that those patients using cannabis were able to eat and maintain weight and at mm. least have a decent quality of life, despite this diagnosis that, you know, didn't have a treatment. Um, so I think it definitely, um, has evolved over time. I would say that now, especially now, because CBD is rampant and available. I mean, you can't almost go a whole, you can't go a day mm. out of your house and not see a CBD store, or you walk into, <laughs> a, um, you know, the grocery store, the, the store that sells like the, um, gym equipment, it's got <laughs> CBD right there at the checkout, right? The you, can in Australia. And, you can definitely yeah. go a day in Australia without seeing all that stuff <laughs> it's just cbd still scheduled medicine here unfortunately. right so here it but here's the cbd stores wherever you go right yeah. so um but the whole point is that kind of like the the public has accepted it a lot of primary care doctors have accepted it it seems that the more specialized the doctor the less accepting they are and that's just kind of my own take on it and my own observation, you know, I read an article somewhere where it said the more specialized you are in your field, kind of the more close-minded you are, yeah, which is that's really fascinating. Yeah, really fascinating. But I would say that, you know, when I first started, I, I mean, I got chewed out by a pain management doctor once I got chewed out in the very early days by a neural, a pediatric neurologist, <laughs> by the way, yelled at by a pediatric neurologist who had recommended that a child have half her brain removed. And when she had half her brain removed, the other half had the complication, the other half stroked out. So did that procedure help that child, do you think? I mean, you're afraid of a plant, but you're gonna go in and take out somebody's brain, half their brain. I mean, I kind of find, I find that utterly ridiculous that you yeah. would be so afraid or so ensconced in your, in your, um, th this paradigm of, it has to be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, what are they doing when they're enrolling patients in clinical trials where they know the drug really doesn't work, but they need a guinea pig and they, you know, you're at the end of your cannabis or your, um, cancer treatment and there's nothing, sorry, we have nothing else for you, but Hey, we'd like to use you as a guinea pig before you die. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I have a problem with that. Yeah. If you're yeah. going to turn to me and say, don't use the plant. Yeah, but you're the you're the uh, quote unquote ecstasy shaman. So, <laughs> what <would you> know? <laughs> which by the way, which, which by the way is coming through now as well. The, <laughs> the MDMA. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's going to be, and remember, anything can be abused. And just because somebody has chosen to quote abuse cannabis or misuse cannabis, does not mean that it's not medicine for somebody else. Mm. We at least nobody's really dying from cannabis abuse right? We have opioids, uh, a major opioid epidemic in the United States. I don't know yeah. if you have that in Australia as well, but my goodness, we are losing lots of people, a hundred thousand people a year, something like that. And it just seems kind of crazy. Cannabis hasn't killed anybody. There's, 
there are some you know, issues that arrive from young people overdoing it really to the extreme. And I'm all for educating them, preparing them so that they don't do that. Cause we all know prohibition doesn't work. The minute you say no, you know, they're going to go find it and use it. So let's mm. just educate starting from a young age. Um, and as a pediatrician, I'll say, look, if you talk to an eight to a nine, between eight and 12 year old, and actually have a conversation where you treat them like a human being with a brain, you're getting them when they're really not under peer pressure, you're getting them at a very early stage where hopefully when they're 15 or 18 and somebody hands them something, some that could be dangerous that they remember and they hear your voice, right? Mm. You can educate at the young age and don't use fear. Just teach them, educate Mm. them about why they should maybe leave their brain alone until they're a little bit older, right? And why the teenage years are so important for brain development and maybe staying away from most substances, unless you're sick. Then if you're sick, use it as medicine with guidance from a physician and with your parents leading the way. So I think there's a lot of room for common sense with these compounds. And I just kind of feel like overall, most doctors now cannot get through a day in their practice without somebody mentioning it. Yeah, And it behooves them to at least, you know, read my book, have a basic understanding of why somebody would even ask you about medical cannabis. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting that the, the newest one I've been seeing a lot here is that a lot of um, doctors are reticent to give uh, patients under 25 THC because of a few studies that have come out um, supporting. Because they don't understand it. I'm sorry. It's medicine. If somebody has an endocannabinoid deficiency, THC can be a very useful medication when used appropriately. And mm. we're not talking about, you know, um, dabbing and you know, sucking on a vaporizer all day long. We're talking about dosed medicine, 2.5 milligrams, five milligrams, 20 milligrams, depending on the condition under medical supervision. Mm. It's so, it's like so easy for me, you know, I've been doing this a long time and it makes so much sense. I have pediatric patients achieving incredible results at school where they did not, weren't even able to go to school. And they take mega high doses of THC. If people knew the kind of dosing, they'd be like, are you kidding me? But remember, these kids have underlying endocannabinoid deficiency Mm. syndrome, you know, and people say, oh, you're making that up. There's a ton of research that shows that children with autism, that people with epilepsy have an underlying endocannabinoid dysfunction, right? And so- Mm. Are we going to, would you leave any other system that you could treat as a deficiency? Would you leave it as a dysfunction? No, as a physician, you're supposed to go in and heal, but that doesn't mean overuse. That doesn't mean problematic use. One thing I always talk about, and I know you probably, you know, you read the book, you probably saw it a few times and I knew I was being redundant because my editor kept saying, do you, you already said this three other times. (laughs) You want to say it again? And I said, I feel that it's a message that has to be out there. Unless you're using low dose THC kind of in an intermittent thoughtful way, what ends up happening is you can develop tolerance to THC. And sometimes that's okay. You can take a dose that initially might be a little impairing, but you get used to it so that yes, you can take that dose in the morning, your pain is gone. And now you can actually function at work. You're not intoxicated, right? So sometimes tolerance is a good thing. But the problem with developing tolerance is if 
as you escalate your, you may escalate your use. And then really what you have to remember what you're doing then is you are downregulating or making those receptors kind of go, hmm, that's too much THC. I'm going to go from sitting on the cell wall where THC interacts with me and I'm going to hide inside the cell. So now what happens is you have less cannabinoid receptors for the THC to interact with, interact with, but more importantly, you have less cannabinoid receptors for your natural endocannabinoids. So if you have an anxiety condition and your body is making some endocannabinoids, but you're relying on THC to treat that anxiety, it behooves you to include some CBD in the mix, some CBG in the mix. I find that when you combo these cannabinoids, you minimize the tolerance issue and you can end up kind of, because remember too, if THC is doing all the heavy lifting, you're expecting it to do everything that you're, you know, want it to do. It is going to downregulate your receptors. So if I'm asking THC to treat my anxiety, but also some CBD and maybe some CBG, then my receptors will hang out and I mm. don't develop that tolerance because I'm kind of shared the burden amongst the different cannabinoids. So, you know, you probably saw it over and over in the book is that really um, using other cannabinoids to keep THC effective and to keep your endocannabinoid system running effectively is a very good approach. And so unfortunately, the people who are misusing or abusing cannabis are just going too high dose, the really highly concentrated products, which mm. I'm not against, uh, you know, a responsible adult using. I mean, look, we live in a world where alcohol is freely available once you're over 21. And even as a pediatric ER doctor, that's what I saw in the emergency room was intoxicated from pills and alcohol. Mm. Um, mm. So I didn't see cannabis related now, these days, because there's high potency, we are seeing some more issues. But part of that is because people are just what doing what I call all THC all the time. Mm, and mm. that's just unfortunately going to backfire if you're not very thoughtful about it. Yeah, but that's that's for a select, you know, you hear stories of people that drink methylated spirits because they, you know what I mean? Or something. It's that if for me, it feels like that, you know, if most people would want to have a glass of wine with dinner or, or a beer at lunch kind of thing, at least in Australia. Um, but you know, to say, to sit down and say, I want to do shots of tequila all the time, which is, you know, these dab rigs, things like that. It's just not a, it's not what I would consider responsible use right. either. That is um, not responsible use. And that's not medical use. It may start off medical because somebody mm. feels better, but unfortunately they are kind of designing their own medical program that no doctor would ever say, oh yeah, do that. It would yeah. be like. Yeah. You know, telling somebody the wrong antibiotic for the wrong infection, right? So, but I imagine the people, you know, uh, presenting at the ED ward would be the types of people treating cannabis as though it was like, uh, what's it called? A beer bong. <laughs> you know, when you eat, it, it's that kind of culture, right? It, it's, somebody's, it is. It's there's some overuse or what we call problematic use. That's kind yeah. of what we're using or misuse. I mean, there's different words, that, but you have to remember too. And I think part of it is, and I, again, I don't believe in prohibition. And I think we've already shown that like the drug war does not work, right? Mm. It just creates an underground channel, which I really would rather not. I don't want my patients buying non-tested medicine. We want them to be using things that are tested and safe and and available in a safe place rather than, you know, kind of 
you know, in, in a situation where guns are involved or whatnot, right? We just try to, we want to try to avoid that as much as possible. Again, common sense. But at the same time, we need to educate our youth so that if they do have access to high potency um, kind of pure THC products, that they understand exactly how that may change their physiology. It's important to understand that. And I, the other thing I'm, I'm interested in, you know, in, in the um, interest of a balanced conversation, you know, we hear cannabis almost espoused as fixing just about everything <laughs> that you can think of. Um, and people just go, oh, it fixes this, fixes that, it's snake oil, blah, 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 whatever. Um, is there anything that cannabis doesn't help that people say it does? Is there anything that you say that, you know, really, you just wouldn't use it for that? Or it, it does, just doesn't, it's not compelling enough for you? That's a great question. It's hard to, you know, I did turn a patient away who had, she had a very rare, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the disease, but she had a rare syndrome of her red blood cells. It didn't appear to be an autoimmune. It didn't appear to, it wasn't cancer. So it was kind of a strange uh, red blood cell illness. And I'm so, again, I'm sorry, I don't remember it, but I remember saying to her, I said, look, if you have like anxiety related to having this illness, yes, cannabis can help you, but to quote, cure your red blood cell disease, there is absolutely no evidence Mm. in the scientific literature, nor do I have clinical experience or do my colleagues have any clinical experience? I mean, remember a lot of illness boils down to certain things, which is anxiety, Mm. poor sleep, poor appetite, um, chronic pain. A lot of illnesses just have those symptoms, Mm. right? And they're secondary, but they're important because it starts to snowball for that patient and it affects their life. And, and, you know, I can't tell you even how many patients have said to me, my chronic illness is still with me, but at least I can go out to dinner with my family. Whereas before I stayed home Mm. because going out was painful and going out, Mm. I was grumpy and I was miserable and why am I going to make everybody else miserable? And, you know, it becomes this kind of, um, you know, and again, people say, you know, is it a panacea for everything? It's not, but if you boil down a lot of illnesses, yeah, all these illnesses have overlapping effects. Quality of life. Yeah. In their quality of life and their ability to participate in their life. Do you, do, you, do you think about cannabis at all in a, in a preventative way? Like, would you take it yourself, um, not just to treat things, but maybe, you know, thinking about well, like having like vitamins or supplements? Yeah. I mean, it gets, look, it gets put in that category in some jurisdictions, but, but in, from a clinical perspective, what are your thoughts on that? So clinically, I think it's a terrific thing to add in uh, to, to a healthy lifestyle. This is a plant that back in the day, somebody decided, or a few people decided, let's make this bad. They didn't know anything about it. They didn't know what a cannabinoid was. They didn't know about the endocannabinoid system. So they decided back in like the 1930s, 1940s, this is a bad plant, right? And so it got kind of separated out, but like tomato plants are good plants and oleander plants are very pretty and decorate my driveway and look nice. And (laughs) I won't eat them because I know they're dangerous, but in general, you know, what our ancestors knew about the cannabis plant was that it was just another plant that they used. And it was part of our apothecary. It was part of our, you know, pharmacopoeia. And then one day it wasn't for all the wrong reasons. Mm. 
I really believe that had cannabis not been removed from our everyday life the way it was, that we would have a healthier population. And if you could disagree with me, but what's the number one cause of illness right now? Inflammation from all these chemicals in our food and in our environment. We live, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's an oncologist and she said, you know, we live in a cesspool of chemicals Yeah, and it would be nice to have something to counteract that. What are, you know, when I was growing up kind of like fast food and microwavable dinners and that kind of stuff became all the rage, you know, mm. life is easier and so on. But what did that do to our population, right? We have yeah. more obesity and diabetes and cancer. And in fact, the last numbers, I just saw cancers kind of going up. People are living longer, but I think they're sicker mm. in certain conditions. We've done a good job with heart disease, right? We've done a good job with some other conditions, but in general, anti-inflammatory um, phytonutrients are something that you should include in your everyday. And you never have to use THC if you don't want to feel intoxicated, impaired, or if it makes you feel weird, you can use the other cannabinoids and the other plant compounds. Look, I know people who juice cannabis. They're some of the healthiest people I know. They grow their own and they juice it on a regular basis. And they're they, and when I call them for their checkup, they say, I'm even better than last year and I'm aging and I'm even better than I was. And I also think that when you feel better, you also take better care of yourself. It kind of, again, snowballs into, I feel good enough to exercise today. You know what? I'm not going to go for the comfort food. I'm going to eat healthy today. I'm going to choose healthy food. So I do think that there's something about plants being part of our um, lifestyle that should include cannabis. Absolutely. I, um, I'm sorry to, I just, something you mentioned before when you talked about your friend, the oncologist, I just, I know before the show we were talking about its potential use to treat cancers. And I'm going to tread carefully here because in Australia, our medicines regulator, which is essentially is the administer or well, administers approval pathways for access to to medical cannabis, which is by and large unapproved medicines, they've never given an approval for directly treating an oncology condition. Um, it has been approved. One of the earliest ones was for nausea induced by chemotherapy. But I'm just curious, in the US, uh, what is what has been the experience of, of doctors using cannabis to, to treat cancers? I know that's a really broad question, but are there any particular ones that you can speak to there? Sure. So few things to realize that um, it, there's a lot to it. So if you're okay with a long answer, I'm going to go. <laughs> Please. Okay. No question at all for chemotherapy induced side effects that cannabis helps. So helps with nausea, vomiting, pain, have anxiety. I mean, just all of that stuff. And in fact, an oncologist who I um, have spoken to numerous times, very well-known pediatric oncologist at a big university here has even said to me that walking down the oncology, pediatric oncology ward, he can tell which patients are using cannabis and which are not. So it's obvious to him when he gives, because he has years of treating patients without using cannabis, and he sees the misery of mm. children getting chemotherapy. And then he can see the one running around playing and happy and eating a Subway sandwich who is <laughs> right, not puking 
gee, you know what, what's going on? And no question that in my experience, and obviously in some of my colleagues, that um, almost 100% of those patients who are using it to counteract the side effects of cancer itself and the, the complications that come with the treatment of cancer, the standard treatment of cancer, that it's very helpful for that. And you can get away with low doses. I'll share with you a little boy with leukemia has a good prognosis. He was miserable. He just wanted to lay around all day. His got sores in his mouth. He didn't want to eat or drink. They wanted to give him morphine. And the mother was just like, gosh, enough with the heavy duty medicines. She came to me on one milligram of THC three times a day. He ate his mouth didn't hurt. He played. She said, you cannot tell the difference apart from his little bald head, which of my children has cancer. He's running around playing just wow. like the other kids. I mean, it turned mm -hmm. his life around. Why would she lie to me? I believe her. She is not lying. And that is very low dose, non-intoxicating, non-impairing dose. It just kind of pushed him into that kind of happy zone. Um, and then the question becomes is what do we know about cannabis as an a directly treating cancer or affecting cancer. So we have the first study back in 1975 that showed that THC in a test tube can kill lung cancer cells. So how does it do that? Lung, um, all, or I should say most cancer cells have do express cannabinoid receptors. Remember, if I have a cannabinoid receptor on the part of the cells in the part of my brain that control nausea, when THC binds to that cell, it tells that cell, turn down the message of nausea, right? It changes the message. On a cancer cell, when THC binds to that cannabinoid receptor, what's the message? The message is kill yourself. And they call it the fancy word is apoptosis. So THC can directly kill cancer cells. We also know that wow. uh, THC and CBD can directly affect how a tumor cell multiplies. So there's less multiplication of the cancer cells. CBD and THC to some extent have both been found to be what we call anti-angiogenic. What does that mean? Cancer cells make their own blood vessels to feed themselves. So yeah. think about a tumor, right? It has to feed itself. It hijacks blood because it wants the sugar and it wants the oxygen. It wants all the nutrients. And um, an oncologist that I saw a wonderful video on said that by the time a tumor is the size of a head on the ballpoint pen, like think about how tiny that is already, right? So you can't really see that. Mm. It's already making its own blood vessels. So that's called angiogenesis. THC and CBD block those um, messages to build blood, uh, blood vessels for the cancer. So it's anti-angiogenic. So it kind of starves. It, it, it begins exactly. to starve the tumor. Exactly. And there's lots of plants that do that. That's in yeah. fact what the lecture was about was other foods that starve cancer mm. or how to starve your cancer cells. It's on YouTube. You can go find it. And then, and he's a well-known oncologist who did that talk. And then the other thing that, that CBD does specifically CBD and maybe THC to an extent is they're anti-metastatic. So remember that cancer cells send messages to each other to go and spread. And uh, cannabinoids block that message. CBG does this to a certain extent and so on. And so we have this data that shows in test tubes and in animals that cannabinoids kill cancer cells. 
stop them from spreading, stop them from building um, blood vessels to feed themselves. Then there's a small number of research that shows that cannabinoids plus certain chemotherapies actually synergize. There's also a handful of studies that show that cannabinoids plus radiation. So like for instance, CBD makes certain cancer cells, and again, it's laboratory tests, not in humans, um, makes the cells more sensitive to radiation. Well, if I'm going to get radiation, wouldn't I want to make my cancer cells more susceptible <laughs> to the radiation? I want yeah, to kill them. Yeah. Yeah, And then very recent research that came out of UCLA here. So I know a wonderful uh, researcher here who's brilliant. She studies natural killer cells and she was introduced to a family um, of a little girl I take care of who has a brain tumor that's been very difficult to get rid of. And um, because that mother was very involved in the cannabis industry, the, this researcher became kind of interested in it. And she just published a study that shows that a synthetic cannabinoid, which is very common used, commonly used in research, actually um, kills what we call cancer stem cells, which are like the really nasty, don't really respond to chemo and radiation. They kind of lurk. So when you hear about somebody who says, oh, my cancer, I'm in remission, and then, you know, lo and behold, a year later, they relapse. Well, yeah. why did it come back? Because those cancer stem cells can, can be kind of dormant, but they'll hang around. And they're very hard to kill with chemo and radiation. And she just published a study that showed that um, the, the synthetic cannabinoid killed the cancer stem cells. The other thing that's really fascinating is this particular doctor, her research has focused for the last, I think, 25, 30 years on what we call natural killer cells. That's part of your immune system. There are cells that tell the difference between healthy and unhealthy cells. So if you develop some mutated cells in your body, like cancer cells, your natural killer cells are one of your first um, defenses. And you're not, I call them the warehouse security. They're kind of floating around looking for the bad guy, right? <laughs> and when they see the bad guy, they get it. They don't, the warehouse didn't get broken into, right? They take care of it. Gotcha. What's fascinating is she found that pretty much everybody with cancer has a dysfunctional natural killer cells. And what she found was that cannabis enhances the function of natural killer cells by actually boosting their function. So it's fascinating um, that some of the more recent research, it's not just direct killing of the cells, but there's all these other things. Now that all being said, here it is in 2022 and we have like basically no human research. No human clinical trials with cannabis. It's kind of appalling. I will tell you in my practice, unfortunately, what usually happens is people come to me towards the end. They've exhausted all treatment. It's very difficult to save somebody when you're using a plant that takes time to work. Yeah. Right. But I will share with you. And I wrote about a boy in my book um, who came to me at the end stages of bone cancer, metastatic, multiple tumors throughout his body and his spine and his lungs. His doctor sent him specifically to me, an oncologist for pain management because opioids were no longer working. He was 16 at the time and my son was 14 at the time. And I said, there's no way I'm letting this boy die without trying. They've already written him off. So what does anybody care if I give him high dose cannabis? Um, he was 16. He's 23 now. He was cancer-free within three months. 
Why do I think that he responded? Um, I think that there's, there is a study in mice that shows that cannabinoids plus the chemo he happened to be on in palliative doses, um, they, they synergize and kill cancer cells very well and better than either alone. Mm. So he was on that chemo and look, he was a responder, but I treated him with very high dose CBD and THC. He was intoxicated. He was impaired, but he was out of pain within a week. He was off opioids. Then he's up walking around the house, which he hadn't been doing. His had a high fever from the, you know, the, the cancer burden that went away. And the parents who, by the way, were kind of like um, deer in the headlights in my office, like looking at me, like, what is she recommending? And why is she, we just came here for some pain management. But I said, look, let's try. I'll try to save him. Let's try. They were very nervous. They were very um, skeptical, but yet here they still have their son, right? So, yeah, nice. Right. He was, now I have other patients I have to say that I do believe cannabis contributed to their kind of status of being in remission. Mm. No question. And I never say, and I wrote it in the book, I never say, is it a cure for cancer? Because I just cannot say that without the studies. But certainly I've seen extension of life. An extension of life with a quality of life. And that's important because I don't want to make anybody live longer to suffer. Yeah. 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 Amazing. It's uh, this is kind of why I was just kind of wanted to get you on because in the book just broke it down so crystal clear and it was so simple to understand. And, and you've just kind of done that again for me. Um, so I really appreciate that. I, I know. I, I can't leave this conversation without at least um, giving, we have a lot of doctors in Australia that tune into the show and I'd say the, the main, and it's probably the same for you, I imagine, but the main conditions that doctors are treating here for cannabis would be pain, anxiety, and sleep. There's kind of like the holy trinity um, here. Do you have like a, a bit of a, a cheat sheet to what you, I know you can't say it works for everybody or, or you use the same thing in every situation, but are there kind of go-to combinations of cannabis medicine that you would use in general for pain? And you say it's, it's, usually effective based on your your experience over the years for for pain anxiety and sleep 800 milligrams okay so for sleep i've already mentioned i'm a i'm a big fan of thc for sleep and using a thc uh, preparation that has myrcene that has linalool the kind of the more calming and sedating to kind of help you turn off at night so to speak Um, and many of my patients will either inhale or they use the gummies or tinctures. So any of those can work. By the way, one thing we didn't talk about is these, what we call biphasic properties of these cannabinoids. So at low dose, let's say CBD can be alerting, but in high doses, CBD can be sedating. So some people who don't want to take THC might take a higher dose of CBD and that might help, Mm. um, help them sleep. Of course, uh, the studies don't really there's always going to be somebody who takes it and then is going to sleep. So we can use high dose CBD for sleep. I I just haven't found it in low doses to be anything more than probably a placebo effect. You take 10 milligrams and you fall asleep. I think it's more kind of, I know I'm, I'm expecting to sleep. So you sleep. Yeah. I think for anxiety, you've got a multitude for some people, low dose THC, 2.5 milligrams of THC is going to do the trick for some people. They need higher dose CBD for some people, CBG, can be very nice. I know a clinician here in the United States who recommends a combination, half CBD, half CBG in a one-to-one ratio for anxiety. 
And I started using that and I have found that that for, not for me, but for my patients has been a very nice combination and is, I think, again, when you combine cannabinoids, sometimes you can get better results at lower doses. So it keeps the cost down because remember Mm. not covered by insurance Um, for anxiety as well. uh, For some people um, taking CBDA, although I have to say, we don't know the mechanism of action there just yet. Um, Mm -hmm. So Uh, I think for inflammatory pain, I like CBD. And when I talk about CBD, I mean, high ratio CBD with a little bit of THC in the mix, like a 20 to one, 25 to one, something like that. What kind of dose as well? So dosing, again, it depends on the human, but if we're using high CBD, low THC, I usually start an adult around 25 milligrams, unless they say that they're super sensitive to medicine, then Mm -hmm. I might start with 10 milligrams and titrate up. So in general with adults, 25 milligrams, 50 milligrams, and so on, there are, there's going to be people who are going to be good responders at low dose and other people need much higher doses. Um, Mm -hmm. And CBD is extraordinarily safe. It has a very wide range of dosing. I have a patient who takes 1600 milligrams a day for a seizure disorder that has been worked really well, apart from being very expensive, it's worked really well for him. Mm. Um, And that's, you know, based on his weight. Actually, it's not really, you know, based on the epilepsy dosing, it's not terribly too high. So I think for neuropathic pain, pain that comes from a nerve condition involves neuro- like neuropathy, something like that. We have found the lower ratios, four to one CBD to THC, two to one, one to one can work really well for that. Although some people might prefer just THC, but I find that again, that combination you can find a dose that works and then you don't have to worry about tolerance. Mm. Um, and for some people, you know, um, and again, remember when you're using like a one-to-one, you've taken that wide range of when it's high CBD ratio, that very wide range of that you can tolerate when it's like a one-to-one, remember the THC is playing a much uh, bigger role. So it narrows the dosing window. Um, but most patients, and usually anything that has a significant amount of THC in an adult, I'll start with 2.5 milligrams and titrate up in 2.5 milligram increments. If somebody's very elderly, I might go one milligram, two milligram, three, mm. four. And I always prepare the patient. We're starting low. We want to find what we call the minimal effective dose. There's no reason to take more than what you need. And that's the whole concept behind start low and go slow. So you can really find, but remember too, sometimes you have to pass up your good dose and go, oops, oh, I took too much. Now let me back up. Yeah. 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 And then in conjunction, you're doing the rule in rule out as well. It's, it's kind of like just a, it's a bit like cooking in a way, you know, you're just adding different things just to, you know, hopefully get it right. And then, yeah. Um, no, I, I feel like we could just talk for hours with you. <laughs> you are Bonnie. And so we'll, um, we'll spare you that, but um, I just, yeah, it, it's just been a wealth of, of knowledge. And we again, recommend anyone who's listening to, um, to read your book because it, it really is just so amazing. It's, it's kind of authoritative in, in my mind. Um, just yeah. the extent to which it, breaks all of these, these concepts down. Um, and one, one thing, if I could add in, I started a YouTube channel back mm-hmm. in July of 2022. So not that long ago. And 
in that I'm trying for those people who aren't readers, you know, a kind of down and dirty, here's the information you need. So I'm doing each cannabinoid, kind of what we know so far about it, how it works. I try to include all the scientific information, which may be too much for somebody, but I always kind of go in this method of like, what is the compound? Um, What do we know about it, where it interacts? Um, What are the medicinal properties? And then what I've seen clinically. That's, and then, that's great. Yeah. And then what's the future of that particular compound? So that's very beneficial. We have a lot of uh, diehard fans that would um, be very much into that. I, I know there's well, what's a lot the of people- name of the channel, Bonnie. So it's under my name, Bonnie, B O N N I, no E, Goldstein, G O L D S T E I N M D. And right now there's a handful on there. There's one about autism and one about the mechanism how CBD helps epilepsy. I've got one on CBG. CBD, CBDA, and are so you on. on um, are you yep. on TikTok as well? Or <laughs> I'm not on TikTok, although my son tells me I need to be, but I will. I will probably try to get there at some point. <laughs> We're not yeah, Condense a whole episode. <laughs> yeah, you, you just you need to do it in thirty second like bite size <laughs> on autism. Oh. Yeah, that's asking a lot to explain cannabinoids in 30 seconds, but (laughs) (laughs) I've had that conversation with my son. So we'll see what happens. You may see me there soon. That's awesome. It's it's beautiful. We, we, as I said, kind of um, before we, we started rolling the camera, um, it's kind of helping people understand and, and move in their mind, at least what has traditionally thought of as more hippie or Eastern medicine, let's say into a very Western medicine kind of viewpoint, because it's, it's always, it's always been there. It just has been maybe um, categorized in that other camp. And, you know, I've often explained when people say, you know, what's the endocannabinoid system to me, I say, you know, sometimes people talk about how everything's interconnected, but there's no science behind it that in, when they say it, <laughs> this is the science behind that. <laughs> it's kind of what I say. Yeah. And it's true because doctors still are learning by system. So we learn neurologic system, we learn um, respiratory system. And I guess it's not a bad way to learn physiology, but think about why cannabis might help so many different conditions. It's because where the cannabinoid receptors are, they're everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, yeah, no, absolutely. And so, yeah, it is, and that's why you, when people do respond positively, it's, this kind of overall feeling that they they report it's it's not like you know you just treated my pain it's like well in so doing i started to sleep better and i'm my mood is better because i got a good night's sleep it's 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 quite incredible um yeah dr bonnie thank you so much for um for joining us um you know i'm sure if uh, Mitch and I find ourselves over in LA, we'll uh, we'd love to um, you know pop by the clinic and and have a <laughs> chat in person. But likewise, if you're down under anytime soon, um, let us know. But yeah, thank you so much for for your time and insights. It's it's just been a wonderful episode. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you for giving me the chance to share. Uh, about cannabis because I think it's so important. It definitely needs to be an option. And one thing I'll just say is for anybody listening, any fears you have are unfounded. I am the biggest chicken in the world. <laughs> My husband jokes that if you unzip me, there's a chicken inside. He calls me a mommy in a chicken suit. Look, I worked in the ER. I saw everything awful. So, you know, I'm afraid of stuff. And, yeah. you know, um, and I use this. I'm a conservatively trained physician. 
and there there's it, 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 the fears are unfounded under medical supervision, especially my goodness, it's such a safe and well-tolerated medicine and it's incredibly rewarding to be able to help people with it. So I encourage people to learn the science because you know, the stigma and the propaganda, all that, we're scientists, ultimately physicians are, and we should know the science. Absolutely. And I'm going to plug the book one last time. Cannabis is medicine. Go out, get a copy, read it. It's a wonderful book. It'll change your life. And thank you, Dr. Bonnie. Until next time, take care. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thank you Cheers. so much. Well.